I mean, we know that the meds are effective to a point, but for people who deal with really significant mental health concerns, what changes our life is what changes our life. It isn't ever going to be 100% the meds we take. It's always going to be therapy and then everything else. So that means everything to people. It means everything to me. Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I interview inspiring and influential guests who are making their mark on the world and contributing to the common good. Making your mark big or small is creating your legacy, and it's one of the proven ways we can age with energy and deep contentment. Successful Aging Podcast is my legacy. I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist and fellow Zestful Ager. To find out more about this podcast, my web courses, and my brand new book, Not Just Chatting, How to Become a Master Podcast Interviewer, hop on over to ZestfulAging.com. Our music is courtesy of Judy Banker. Find out more at JudyBanker.com. Ever wonder what the host of Zestful Aging does when she's not podcasting? Creating one-of-a-kind earrings, of course. I've just opened an Etsy shop called Zestful Design, no S, and it showcases my fun, comfortable, and zesty polymer earrings. These earrings are fun to make and fun to wear. So check out my new shop, Zestful Design, on Etsy. And as always, I've got my little loyal Jack Russell Sparky right beside me, and I have a new puppy, Frankie, who's causing havoc upstairs. So you might hear some of the some of Frankie's uh, bouncing. But we have a great interview for you today. Uh, Maria Hornbacher is an award-winning journalist and a New York Times best-selling author of five books. Her work is deeply personal and covers her experiences with mental illness, addiction, and her battle with eating disorders. And as many of you know, I'm a clinician who deals with eating disorders. And I first came upon her work. Uh, she wrote a book entitled Wasted, which it was a very um, profound book. Um, and we're going to talk to her today about a lot of different things. She, as I said, she has, uh, she talks very honestly about mental illness and addiction, but we're also going to talk to her about embarking on a solo life after being partnered. And also, um, I'm curious to talk with her about the stigma of mental illness and how her books are received now. And, and if this is sort of a time and place uh, that's that's uh, pertinent for those kind of discussions. So welcome to the show, Maria. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to to talk to you finally. As I as I said, I've read your work and I know you through uh, Chelsea Clammer, who is also on this podcast. And you know, you're we we can also often say as uh, readers, um, you know, wow, that book was deeply personal, but you really take this to the next level. Do you think that's fair? No. Um, no? I think it's, I think it's a great, I, I think it's a great concept. Um, the idea of deeply personal, I think is code for honest. Um, uh. And so I think I like it as a phrase. It doesn't mean anything to me personally, because, mm. you know, my personal life is, is very much my personal life. And so the, the books in which I am honest about mental health struggles, 
uh, and the uh, the issues that surround those and perhaps create them. Um, those are honest books. Uh, I think when we talk about what is, you know, personal or raw or gritty or all that language we use uh, to talk about people being honest about their own experience, um, I think what it, it implies more than anything is a discomfort that readers and people in the world may have with people being honest about subjects they aren't comfortable with. So like, it's, mm, it's not mm. personal to me to talk about mental illness. Uh, what's personal to me is to talk about like, what do I wear in, in when I'm sleeping? You know what I mean? Like that's personal to me. Like my private life is actually quite private. My mental health struggles because, um, because they are common, because they are shared, millions and millions of people share those experiences. Why would that be private? Uh, it's a public health crisis. And why would it be something I keep close to my chest? You know, to me, the answer is always, well, I should be probably ashamed of it. But in fact, I'm not. So, yeah. So you do know that uh, that's that's a unique um, perspective uh, and we may we may celebrate it, but not everyone shares your confidence to say, hey, I've got a condition that is still deeply stigmatized and I'm going to tell you all about it. Sure. I, I mean, not everybody does. No, but a lot of people are on Facebook talking about uh, their boyfriend dramas. I'm not. To me, that's personal. You know what I mean? Like, so like to me, yeah. there's a very big difference between what is clinically and culturally significant, which, right. you know, to me, you know, public health crises are, whereas a lot of people are on uh, Facebook ranting and talking about things they haven't processed, things they haven't worked through. That's to me, that's exposing a personal life. I don't do that. I talk about mm-hmm. things that I've done research on. I've talked about things that I've done a lot of work on myself. I mean, you know, the books, and this is true of any book, any book that goes into the world has been not just written, but edited and edited and edited, mm-hmm. translated into dozens of languages and printed millions of times. And so in that sense, these millions of books floating around the world with my byline on them, are those personal to me? Not particularly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's funny, uh, one of the questions I like to ask uh, authors is, you know, what's it like putting yourself out there and having total strangers read all about some um, struggles, uh, really difficult times? And it sounds like for you, you know, you're not caught up in the shame of that. You're saying me and, and a lot of other people and here's what it looks like. That's very much it. I mean, exactly. You've, you've pinpointed it right there because it is me and a lot of other people. I think, you know, if it was it, if it was something I had not processed, if it was something I hadn't done my own work on, mm-hmm. sure, I would be in a confessional mode. I would be processing for the sake of processing on the page. And then you, the reader, would be uh, kind of impacted by that in a very different way. Mm-hmm. Um, but because the books are things that are common, are cultural phenomena, uh, are things that are discussed ignorantly, if they are discussed at all, um, my my motivation for putting those books out isn't to get it off my chest. That's what I do in therapy, which again, is private, is personal, uh-huh. right? In the books, what we're doing, not just me, but I'd say this is true of Chelsea Clammer as well. And a lot of people that I work with and are, am close to, people who write personal narrative, um, memoir or other types of personal narrative, we're not out there doing therapy on the page. We are crafting work. Uh, mm-hmm. in our, per- in our therapy sessions, we're a lot less pretty, I'd say a lot less, uh, crafted, a lot less organized, a lot messier, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not a, yeah, I, un- I understand what you're saying. Would you, do you think of it in some way as a public service? Um, I hope it is. 
I don't know that I always succeed in that effort. You know, so like that is my, again, that's my motivation. I often fall short. Um, and that's, that's true of giving talks. That's true of doing interviews. That's true of being upfront with people about, you know, these are situations I've been in. So have millions of you. I'm aware that you aren't comfortable talking about them. It doesn't bother me to talk about them. So I want those readers or people or listeners to feel seen. So the best compliment any writer of personal narrative, I think, can get is when somebody comes up to you, some stranger. So this goes back to your original question, what's it like to have, quote unquote, myself out there? The most important thing that can happen for any writer of personal narrative is somebody comes up to you and says, you told my story. Uh That is my goal right there Uh is not to tell, this is not, you know, the Mario show. It is, this is a common story. This is in fact a women's story. It's Uh a women's story from a particular place in time, right? My goal there is to tell a common story in a way that resonates with women and men perhaps and other people who have been where I have been because I want them to feel their story has been seen, heard, and represented in the world. And when you're writing, Do you sort of imagine people um, listening or or do you imagine an audience that you're writing to? Is that? uh, Sure. Yeah, I hope so. If I'm uh not, I'm I'm writing in my diary. You know, if if I don't, if I'm not writing for an audience, uh, Mm -hmm. I'm talking to myself, which I can do and do, right? You know, I do keep Mm -hmm. a, keep a notebook of notes that's not for public consumption, but that's not writing. That's writing down my thoughts, which are generally garbage. (laughs) You know, I mean, I mean that like, I mean, if I have this golden prose syndrome where everything I write needs to go into the world, I'm deeply delusional, you know, I mean, when I write and put it into the world, it's because I think I've said something that somebody else Mm -hmm. might enjoy or at least resonate with in some way. Today's episode is sponsored by Kindra. Kindra is a self-care company that makes estrogen-free essentials designed by women for women to support people who experience the hormonal changes of menopause. Their line of menopause essentials includes a daily vaginal lotion that dramatically relieves vaginal dryness and three daily supplements all thoughtfully designed to target and relieve the symptoms of menopause, including hot flashes, brain fog, mood swings, and more. Each of these products is backed with years of research and development to identify the most potent and effective formulations. Visit our Kindra, O-U-R-K-I-N-D-R-A dot com using code ZESTFUL20 for 20% off your first purchase. And I'd love to hear how it works for you. Is there a time sort of during your day that you want to sort of swim in the shallow end and not talk about things like public health crises of (laughs) mental illness, you know, uh, profound eating disorders, these kinds of things? I mean, is that, do you ever need to take a break from these uh, deeply important and difficult topics. Sure. But I also have been taking a break from those topics. I mean, the last time I've written publicly about eating disorders was about 17 years ago. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so that's I mean, dating, that's dating my career a little bit. <laughs> well, right. So like, I mean, it's, yeah. um, I wrote, uh, Wasted came out in 1998. Uh, mm-hmm. I have students who've been born since then, you know what I mean? In, in, oh in graduate God. school. So, you know, I mean, like there are, th- these are grownups now. You yep. know, that book Oops. is, 
you know, that book is old and it represents a very specific point in time. Um, but, and Madness too was published a long, long time ago. And, uh, in, in the intervening years, my advocacy, my mental health advocacy has certainly taken different shapes. I do a lot of volunteer work. I do a lot of pro bono speaking, everything like that. But my, but my focus as a writer for many, many years has been on women's lives in ways that don't target mental health per se. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe that's a great way to transition. Um, you are writing a book now about being on your own after yeah. being partnered. And um, I don't know how you refer your, to yourself as middle age, post middle age, post menopausal, whatever it is, yeah. but you're not in your 20s. We know no, that. Sure I'm not, right? <laughs> And so this is a transition that I'm imagining you didn't plan for necessarily. I think I didn't. No, I, but I also was fine with it when it came, you know, when, when my marriage ended, it was not a matter of like crisis, you know, personal, you know, disaster. It was certainly wasn't enjoyable, but my next awareness was, oh, this, this allows me to do a lot of things I've wanted to do for a long, long time. Like what? Like be alone. <laughs> you know, to be totally <laughs> honest, to be by my damn self, right? So like to get some work done, to get up in the morning, walk the dog, meditate, do yoga, work out, and write for 14 hours if that's what I want to do. Um, it's allowed me to travel uh, on my own time, in my own way. You know, it's because, you know, partnering is wonderful. And I think a lot of people do seek it. I've never taken to it terribly well. Um, I, I've enjoyed my, my relationships that I've had with partners, but I also really deeply value solitude. And, uh, so one of the books that will be coming out in the next five years is a collection of essays on the creative power and necessity of solitude in women's lives. So that's, that's a different book. The one you're referring to uh, is called uh, One Last Bitch, Notes on Going Solo at the End of the World, which is really about a very intentional decision to not repartner. You know, I mean, so many of us have been raised with this sort of phantasmal idea of what it means to be in a relationship, whatever our gender or sexual preference may be. Um, the partnering, the impulse to partner is mm -hmm. so de facto that I think mm -hmm. people sometimes fall into it. And I didn't want to. And so I'm like very comfortable being alone, I'm very comfortable being with myself. And I think very few women, I think even realize that's one of their options. You know yes, what I mean? Yes, yeah. uh, absolutely agree with that. And, and I think are so probably socialized, but so used to perhaps being partnered up that maybe they can't even imagine what it would be like to be alone, even if they are financially independent and um, have goals for themselves that exactly. don't include a partner. Yeah, I think we're very acclimated, whether by habit, you know, 20, 25 years married or whatever. Um, so in, in answer to your question, I think of myself, I suppose, as middle-aged, because technically I'm 47. I am mm -hmm. postmenopausal, which is the best thing that's ever happened to me, honest mm. to God. Like, and also to that, it's the best thing that's ever happened for my mental health uh, was menopause. Um, I was suddenly like, wow, I haven't been this sane since I was, whoa, 12, right? You know, like, really? So oh, hormonally, God, yes. things were everything. Everything, Everything got, yes, 
how fascinating. It's dreamy. I'm telling you, like, I wake up and I'm like, oh, I'm saying again. And so I really am enjoying and that. were you noticing in terms of the bipolar cycling, it, it corresponding to cycles, uh, to a, a time in your cycle, in your menstrual cycle? I was not aware of that. Um, I think we know so little to this day about the influence of hormones on mood disorder, right? Um, we Certainly there's PMDD. People are aware that there can be really catastrophic PMDD. But people mm -hmm. don't really, they haven't studied, as we are reading more and more, the, the influence of women's bodies on their minds. There seems to be a grave disconnect. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I'm, uh, I'm really hoping some of that research can be done because in my, in my late 30s, when I started hitting perimenopause, I was going into the doctor and being like, you know, I feel a lot better. Um, can, we, can we maybe take me off some of these meds? And especially young doctors were looking at me like, I don't think this is related. And I'm going, mm. okay, but it's my body and you're mm. 14. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's, so, oh my goodness, you know is that I mean? ever so like, true? So I really yeah. found myself grappling it with the medical institutions in a very different way. And over time, I had to get a lot of kitchen wisdom from women who'd gone through the process themselves and say, this worked, this didn't, this did, this helped, this didn't, this was a disaster, whatever. So going through that process actually really kind of entrenched my sense of trust in the women in my life. Mm -hmm. um, then having, having gone through that process, um, the, the habituation of being in relationship for so long, I found myself for the first year that I was, I, I usually refer to it as being solo, you know, being unpartnered, mm -hmm. um, simply because it's not single seems to signal to people that I'm looking for a partner. Whereas solo, I, I hope allows people to see that it is it is a decision it is a it is a place i am in in my life and i'm i'm happy with it it's a choice um and so i don't know that everybody makes that distinction but it's how i make the distinction mm -hmm. in my own head um, I see. that first year i was really struggling with realizing I didn't know how to shape my day, right? So like I had been a caretaker. My husband was very sick um, and, and I was his primary caretaker for many, many years, 10 years or so, the last 10 years of our relationship. And so everything in my life defaulted to anything can be canceled if there's an emergency. Uh -huh. Everything I want to do in my life comes second or 14th or 87th because I need to make dinner, call the nurse, mm. do, you know, check the oxygen, mm. all the things, right? And I don't begrudge that. And I certainly don't resent it. It's just the, the fact of how it was. But once I was out of that situation, um, I found myself going, I don't know how to structure 24 hours if it's mm -hmm. my 24 hours. And that mm -hmm. actually made me so sad that I'm like, well, figure it out. You know what I mean? mm -hmm. So yeah, so that's been the process is figuring out what, what do I choose for myself? What are the options available to me? I'm doing some of the strangest things I can't ever have told you. I would never have thought that I would be doing some of the things that I do now just to, to try them. You know, oh, so this yeah. is so. This is great because this is. These are conversations I've had with many women, and in fact, my clients too, who say, "I don't know who I am. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I know I'm a great teacher, or right. a great caregiver, or a great parent." And I will ask them questions. Well, what what do you like? And they look at me like, is that a trick question? Right. And so we'll go back to what did you used to do when you were five? And they right. say, I drew, I took pictures. And yes. then, you know, we sort of work on that. What have you rediscovered about yourself now that you're solo? Oh, so much. Um, I was an only child for one thing. And so if we go back to my five, what did I do with those days? I played, I wrote, honestly, I mean, I climbed trees, I was outside all the time. And so mm -hmm. to, 
you know, if I look at, you know, fast forward 42 years, I am outside all the time. Oh, wow. Now, honestly, I'm literally writing in the park. I'm writing at coffee shops outdoors. I'm hiking constantly. I'm doing, but I'm also doing some fun stuff that like I never had thought that I would even want to do. I'm doing a lot of photography. Um, I'm doing some art modeling. I'm doing, I'm, I just started taking silks, aerial silks, dancing. Oh, my goodness. Um, I've done, you know, all these years I've done yoga. I've done, you know, I'm very active physically. And that certainly has contributed to the fact that now that I'm 47, I'm in the best shape of my life. I'm able to do silks. Uh And and I'm like, what? No one told me that pushing 50 would feel like this. Uh Honestly, and I will tell you, just to be totally frank, because this is a podcast and not the FCC, I, somebody I, I spent some time with who, I, he's not a partner, but he is a, he is an intimate friend and we have a good time. We were in bed the other night and he goes, is it getting old great? And uh, we just laughed. We just laughed. Uh, I mean, we were howling. I'm like, you know, it actually, it is. You're because, describing a yes. sort of freedom and That's intentionality. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's no default to this. Uh-huh. You, you're really making it up as you go along. Very much so. Yeah. And it's a is joy. There, it is a joy. Is there, you alluded before, like, oh, how do I structure my day and it being sad? I mean, one of the things that I talk to women about is that just they're so afraid of like, well, what if I don't like it? Or what mm-hmm. if I don't, I'm like, um, you know, you don't sign up for something that's a six month commitment. You right. go and you try something at the library that they're putting on and it's, you're, you know, you can survive an hour if you're not. Yes. It's, it is interesting. I mean, you have a different, I think you've had to develop a competence um, in some ways, but many women, I think, are just so um, perplexed by this that taking the first step feels uh, very frightening, very it vulnerable. It does. It feels, I, I listened to a student a couple years back. <clears throat> I was just walking into class one day and I was talking about, students were asking me, what are you working on? It was right when I was wrapping up this collection of essays on women in solitude. And I said, I'm working on a collection of essays about women in solitude. This young woman, maybe 1920, said, oh, I, I hate solitude. And I, I was just befuddled. I said, why? You know what? Don't you want it sometimes? She's like, no, I'm, I find it really scary. I get really uncomfortable. And I'm like, that's why I'm writing it is because it wasn't just my generation or the great generation. It wasn't just any one generation. That fear of being alone endures, is taught, is perpetuated. Um, And so I do feel that I'm now at this kind of tipping point in my own life. I mean, certainly I'm well past half, but I am young enough now that I can model to younger women that it is not only okay to be alone, it may be preferable for you. Even if it's just for a period, even if it's not something you later, I mean, maybe when I'm 90, I'll want to get married again. Very (laughs) unlikely. But at this point, I'm willing to say, this is the period when I get all my hours. If I choose to spend those with a date, I can do that. If I choose to spend them with my, you know, elderly parents, I can do that. If I choose to spend them literally working on the same paragraph for 24 hours, I can Uh do that too. Uh And that to me is freedom that we elect And yes, at first there is a vulnerability and there are certainly days where I'm like, Maria, shut up, shut up, you know, with your thoughts and your feelings in your head, you know, I get very tired of being with myself some days. And those are days I spend outside, you know, I mean, there's an easy fix to that. I go outside. You know what I've noticed, and certainly I'm not the only one to make this observation is, is literally 
people can't even grocery shop themselves. They're on, or I was in Target the other night. I'm like, do you really have to have a conversation on your phone <laughs> all the time? I mean, you're buying toothpaste, you know? Yes. And it just see, I mean, I you know, really judgmental, but it doesn't sound like it's that important. It's right. just chitty chat. And, and I wonder if you're noticing that too, and if that connects with this, just this fear of, being quiet and with your own thoughts, even if you're doing some dumb errand. Yes, I think it does connect to that. And I think, I mean, you know, the element of connectivity, the element of our constant accessibility is mm -hmm. a big piece of that. So this younger, younger women than me are raised on um, having been on their phones, on FaceTime, on some connection, one portal or another, constant accessibility. And when I, um, you know, when I ask students, for example, at the beginning of a, of a course, I'll say, you know, I need you not to look at your phone in class. They look at me like I'm a dragon. <laughs> Heresy. Right? And they're like, well, first of all, they ask really insane questions like, what are we going to write on? And I'm like, a piece of paper. You know what I mean? I will provide it. You know, you'll be fine. But then there's this <laughs> meltdown, you know, in an undergraduate class, they're what, 80 minutes max, 90 maybe? Graduate classes, certainly. I'm like, we're going to get a break. Feel free to go dive into your phone head first again. That's fine. But like these students who are in there for maybe 70, 80, 90 minutes are incapable of being yeah. away from a sense of, to me, it's a very false sense of connection because I'll tell you, when I go onto Facebook, I am depressed within 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. I'm just like, this is so facile. It's so superficial. Mm -hmm. I, you know, and that to mm -hmm. me, that substitute for connection is more depressing than just, well, I don't find being alone depressing, but I'd rather just, if I'm lonely, mm -hmm. I'd rather just sit there and be like, wow, this is loneliness. These are the edges of it. This is what it feels like. This mm -hmm. is the shape of it. And to get to know that feeling like any other human experience. That's I okay see. with me, you know? I see. So you're finding that most people, most people that you're teaching anyway, this generation is is not moving towards how do I be comfortable with solitude? They are not. They are mm -hmm. not. And, and it worries me, actually, for them. I think also, you know, they are. So I got my first cell phone when I was like 25, right? Internet hit when I was in my early 20s. So I had a whole childhood and adolescence, <clears throat> young adulthood, without the constant accessibility. And mm -hmm. I have never really found it to be much of an improvement to have this constant accessibility. I leave my phone a lot. I leave it I leave it around because I, I don't want to be mm -hmm. pinged every seven seconds. Mm -hmm. You know, I really don't. And I want also, but I also don't know a world. I don't have the experience of these younger people, which is that they don't know what it's like not to have a virtual self. They don't know. I think the issue is they don't know the feeling of being a private self. Mm -hmm. And that and, concerns and me. Is, is there, you know, I think about, circling back to mental illness and, and, and these kinds of things and people talking more openly about uh, perhaps being perpetrated on or being victims of abuse and in some ways that helping I think the stigma right but mm -hmm. also mm -hmm. is there some loss of personal privacy I think so. And I think that actually feeds the question, the original question, which was you write deeply personal work. And I'm like, nobody even knows where I live. Mm -hmm. That's my private life is incredibly private. And all of the quote unquote facts you can find about me online in this virtual self aren't almost any of them accurate. 
So like, I'm, it's like two husbands behind. I'm born in the wrong town. You know, I mean, like you can find all this garbage and feel very confident that you know me personally. And I can assure you, you do not. And so that's sort of the thing is like, yes, there is a lessening of stigma, but I don't think our primary issue with mental health is stigma because yes, we're more public about mental health concerns now, but there's no more money going to fixing mm. them. And so like mm-hmm. until until we put our money where our mouth is, honest to God, and until we start doing the research on things that we do know work, like the psychosocial treatments, mm-hmm. um, we're going to keep funneling money into a very particular hope of a, you know, a magic bullet mm-hmm. and talking a good game about let's change the stigma. Well, and then everybody feels better about having a mental illness, but it doesn't change the illness. So what I want is for us to start actively on the ground in our towns, in our communities, going out and saying, how can we live better? How can we make life better for our fellow people who deal with these issues? And so to that extent, you know, is talking about my own health struggles, is it private? Sure, I suppose. But it's not, nobody at the NIH is trying to develop a med because I broke the stigma. However, at the mental health clubhouse where I teach a writing group for free twice a week, those people, their lessening of stigma, that's meaningful. Those people's lives are changing as is mine. That to me is much more significant work than breaking stigma at a public level. What's that like for you teaching at a clubhouse? And for for listeners who don't know, it's a particular model. And maybe you you'd like to explain it. Better, sure, you I love have it. The words. Okay, oh, I don't have the wording down exactly. I don't. I don't have their buzz line. But international Clubhouse International is a model based on um, you know peer support to some extent. It's not. It's not like peer support as they use it in the VA for therapeutic purposes. It is very much a cultural community based model. So a clubhouse is literally this. It's down the street from me. Um, it is a home. It is cheap rent, and anybody who has a mental health diagnosis is welcome there during the hours that they are open. There is programming all day. The members, they are they are never considered clients or patients. Mm-hmm. They yes. are members. And that to me is a deeply significant difference. So these members can go to yoga. They can go to quit smoking classes. They can go to uh, on adventures. They can go to Maria's writing class. They can go, you know, do data entry training. They can get housing help. And so to me, that sort of the focus on practical living skills and community involvement is everything. And that's really the the foundation of the clubhouse model is that it's not, they're not offering therapy. They're not mm-hmm. offering mental health services as one knows them through the insurance model. I see. Yes. They are creating community for people. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so what you would like to see is more funding for these kinds of projects? Yes, absolutely. I mean, because mm-hmm. meds have not appreciably improved my quality of life. What has improved my quality of life is changes in my life. And so, and I think that's true for a lot of people. I mean, we know that the meds are effective to a point, but for people who deal with really significant mental health concerns, what changes our life is what changes our life. It isn't ever going to be a hundred percent the meds we take. It's mm-hmm. always going to be therapy and then everything else. Mm-hmm. So that means everything to people. It means everything to me. Mm-hmm. I'm just thinking about your work and you know what you're focused on what's do you have your own tight community uh with people who really understand this because i think it's fair to say that any average joe or joanne on the street might not uh, understand 
some of these views and might not be accustomed to thinking about things in this way, um, might be ignorant. Um, yeah. Well, I, uh, you go ahead. No, I do have a very close community of friends and we have been, um, and they're kind of the source of the, the title of my next book that will be released is called We've Been Healing All Along. And that's something my friend Ruth said to me once when I was starting research on this book, which is about how do we approach mental health in a way that is not purely you know, biologically driven because we don't know enough about the biology to make any kind of inroads there at mm -hmm. this point. And so my hope is that this, as I said before, this kitchen wisdom that we have in our communities amongst ourselves and say, ah, that med put me in the hospital or that med has been helpful or that one, you know what I mean? Like the kitchen wisdom of talking to people who are, you know, I hate the old phrase functioning. We're thriving in a really different way than I honestly think a lot of people who've never had a mental health issue can do. Not because they're not capable, but because they've never been forced to pull those tools together to develop that community that is absolute, tight, always present, always available. And I get to be a part of that kind of community and it means everything to me. And so without that, like I was, I went to CVS the other day to, uh, to get a strep test. That's all. Right. So I walk into the little minute clinic and this woman looks at my, um, my chart, sees that I'm on one antidepressant. And she goes, Oh, how was COVID for you? And I go, uh, it was, it was a pandemic. Like, how was it for you? And she was offended. And I'm like, but what are we talking about? She's like, I mean, with a depression. <laughs> I just oh, stopped laughing. That like, sounds like something you'd see on Saturday Night Live. I know, right? But it is, honest to God, that is the most common experience I ever have in medical settings is people being like, oh, and I'm like, no, I'm good. Thanks. I'm going to go back to work now if it's all the same to you. <laughs> like, let me out of here in this paper gown. So like she's, I said to her, to be totally frank, I feel like a lot of people I know who have many of them had major mental health issues in their life, we wound up being a big support for people who'd never had to work at home, never had to deal with a major housing crisis, never had to deal with I'm suddenly broke, never had to deal with these life situations that are actually, thankfully, no longer pressing for us, but we they have been. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when I've got a friend melting down because she's in the same house as her husband for seven hours, I'm going, okay, let me assure you, this could be worse. And it's not, it's not just the, it could be worse premise. It's also, we do have those tools and we're, we're pretty good at sharing them. So you're talking about, you have some skills that other people have not had to develop yeah. And, and resiliency. Yeah, there's, I mean, that resilience, um, it, it is hard one, but it is also incredibly useful. And we're happy to tell people, you know, when you are dealing with the incredible ennui of being alone in your house for a month, mm -hmm. this is what we did, right? And that is how any of us learn really anything. We don't get it from a self-help book. We don't even get it from a book. We get it from someone who says, yeah, I did that once. This is how I did it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That is, yeah, I think that's, that's really important is how, you know, our community, our people. Yeah. And when you look at the uh, research for aging, of course, you know, if you're not in some kind of, it, it, it doesn't have to be partnered, but you got to be with your people. You absolutely and it doesn't do. matter if you're doing macrame together or no, what you're doing. Not at all. Yeah. We're, that we're, connection, we're, that web we're mammals. Connection. Yes, we're mammals. Exactly. We're not meant to be um, just uh, on our own trying to figure absolutely. it out. Yeah. Is there any advice that you want to give our listeners in terms of transitioning now to a solo life? 
Well, I, I would. I would say, at the very least, think about what it would bring you. I think we're so habituated to thinking about our lives in a deficit model, right? I don't mm. have this. If I do that, I won't have that. I'll be this. I'll be that. None of these things are good. And I'm thinking now about my life in a very, very surplus model. Like, what do I need baseline? And also, what else is possible in this situation where I am right now with the resources I have? What resources do I mean maybe need to cultivate to get to other things I want to do? But not just because I have a deficit. Now it's really a matter of, do I, do I feel like taking a dance class? You know, do I feel like learning how to make slow food. You know I mean? What do I want to mm. learn now? That sort of, what are my opportunities? And that's how a solo life has come to seem so lovely to me is that it just gives such deep opportunity for developing my curiosity, my learning, my growth as a person. Yeah, that I think that's just so well said. I mean, this is what I talked to um, with other women just trying to s struggle, you know, what would it look like? What would it feel like? And I love the expression, the surplus model. Yes. You know, as a clinician, we talk about, you know, strength based and all this, but yes. surplus is beautiful. And I, I would say, you know, if you are, if you're, I guess middle class or whatever you want, you know, you have enough money to pay your bills and maybe a little extra. Mm -hmm. We can look at that as surplus. And it certainly is since most of the world doesn't have clean drinking exactly. water. Exactly. Um, you know, boy, wouldn't that be a different perspective and, and have us making different decisions that open our lives up? Yes, exactly. That yeah. opening outward is, is so much of what it feels like to me is I'm not, there's no inquisitiveness at this age for me. Like, what am I hoarding things for? Like, what do I need things for? Things, objects, material mm -hmm. stuff, you know, the, if I have my baseline covered, if I can keep a roof over my head and keep myself reasonably well fed, um, I'm good. And if there is then that surplus, then it becomes a matter, not just of like, what do I want to blow it on? It becomes a matter of who doesn't have some. And that surplus does need to go outward. It needs to mm -hmm. fold outward for me. Um, and that, that matters too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sharing the surplus. Yeah. So it's not just an emotional model, but really a fiscal model as well for me as an individual. That's important to you yeah. to make sure everyone has uh, the, the justice. You're talking about justice. Yeah. Economic justice means a lot to me. And so, and also mm -hmm. time, temporal justice. A lot of times, you know, I can't, I can't give huge amounts of money. A lot of times what I can give is time and presence. Mm -hmm. And because I have that now, because there is a surplus, it makes me available for things that, um, that, that somebody else doesn't have the time to do. Mm -hmm. Sharing of yourself. And again, we're going to go back to the aging research. And yeah. that is the, though, those are the golden nuggets is, exactly. you know, um, what can I share? What can I teach? What's my legacy? And what's going to be left when I'm gone? What have yeah. I contributed? Yep, that's it. Yeah, that's it. Oh, it was so delightful to talk to you. I'm so glad uh, we were able to um, have this, this shared time. And yes. um, I really appreciate your work. And um, thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a joy to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share it with some of your friends. I love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email at NicoleChristina.com.
It's no secret that everyone's feeling pretty restless and unsettled right now. Our lives are upside down and the future is feeling pretty uncertain. But if you're anything like me, organizing my stuff can help me feel a little calmer. It's something I can do to help me feel a little more in control and in charge of my own life. If you think decluttering could help you feel better and you could use a little assistance with that, check out the online course I've developed with professional organizer and designer Carrie Luteran. It's called Too Much Stuff. And too much stuff is different from other courses or articles or guidance you may have used. Uh, We give you clear steps to deal with the clutter and the tools to help you face the overwhelming feelings and the emotions that come up when we're going through our clutter. And a lot of those emotions are just feeling anxious or guilty or just basically flooded with a lot of different confusing feelings. The course is really practical. It's realistic. The lessons are short and punchy, and they're really manageable. We're not trying to set you up for some long, exploratory, you know, super in-depth, burdensome experience. We want something really helpful for you right now. We all need help with our anxiety. So, Being surrounded by more calm and less chaos can really help. So now's a good time to clear out the clutter so we can focus on what's really important in our lives. So find out more at zestfulaging.com. You'll see more about this under the web courses tab. If you have any questions, just shoot me an email at zestfulaging at gmail.com. Thanks so much. And stay tuned next week for another interview with a fascinating and inspiring guest.